for the thing that's hard to do, then everything else becomes an easy alternative if you need to. And mostly the money kind of comes. If you're adding value, the money shows up sooner or later. Hello and welcome to the Transit Lounge, where we interview people who've had a considerable impact on the Muslim world. I'm Mohammed Zaud and today on the show, Harun Mir, the creator of Canary, a cybersecurity honeypot that's used by the biggest tech giants across the globe. I've known Harun for a few years now. We're actually neighbors, like a coffee here and there, a couple of squash games. And and I've got to say, what a fascinating guy. In this particular interview, we focused on Thinkst, the company he founded and currently leads. And it's also the company that's responsible for Canary. If you're using the internet these days, chances are you're using a company that uses Canary. The guy's keynoted at a black hat, the internet security world's top conference, and that's no easy task. He consults governments, he consults tech giants, he gave a speech to NATO, and he slept at the Quantico base for a few weeks. And I can't exactly say who his clients are, but we're talking intelligence agencies of certain countries. We're talking some of the largest luxury and FMCG brands out there and every single social media platform worth mentioning. I went into this interview with one particular question in mind. What does it take to become an authority in one field? And as you listen, I recommend you pay attention to two particular things. The first thing is Harun's sheer focus. Like the guy reached 10,000 hours within a couple of years of his career. And the second thing is Harun's pride in his identity. His identity as a South African, but also as a South African Muslim. We started off exactly there, and that is in South Africa, where he told me about his family's experience in the apartheid. Enjoy the interview. I'll be jumping in and out to draw on some of the other things we spoke about. Yeah, South Africa is pretty perfect. Like it, it was perfect, so it had its issues. But I mean, it, it was an interesting time for us to grow up for a whole bunch of reasons. The one is I caught the tail end of apartheid and apartheid for all its problems forced us to be insular communities. So Islam stayed very strong in its little pockets in South Africa. So in a way, we grew up protecting our Islamic heritage, protecting our Indian heritage, while getting to see a country uh, transform from total world pariah to the rainbow nation. So South Africa was cool. My family were pretty active in the struggle against apartheid. So growing up, we had a, a fair amount of involvement in that sort of stuff. So uncles and aunts would have been in prison or would have been activists or that sort of stuff. And um, would you say you were involved or your family was involved because of um, their religious identity or were they involved just as, as South Africans wanting the country to, to change? Yeah, it's it's super interesting. So my, my grandfather was not the most religious person. He was he was really, really well educated. So uh, in South Africa, the ulama would come to him and have discussions with him on, on questions of faith or questions of stuff like that. But he wasn't what you'd call a, a five times namazi. So I had to ask Harun about his upbringing because you'd think that anyone who's made it in an industry that has such high barriers to entry like you'd think he had a pretty disciplined upbringing, like a very strict father studying four or five hours a day. But Harun told me that he, he played a lot. He had a lot of fun. He played ball. But that sense of uh, fun, that sense of, of playing hard carried through to university. 
I initially signed up for computer science. I failed my first year horribly, miserably. You failed computer science, just for the record, yeah. in your first year. <laughs> yeah, so so it turns out you go to university. So so I get to first year and I start playing a lot of uh, pool. So so I spent all my time playing pool. Uh, like at the time, I, I'd play with people who had uh, represented South Africa. So it turns out at the end of first year, I stroll up to write the computer science exams and I get introduced to the concept of DP. So if you haven't uh, got a certain percentage for tests throughout the year, you don't get to sit for the exam. Sure. And I go, what's a DP? <laughs> so there you have it, guys. Harun Mir failed the first year of computer science at university. Well, the truth is uh, he did so well that the university offered him a job. And whilst at university, while working at university, he had access to all sorts of lectures. He studied humanities, philosophy, legals, all sorts of stuff. And that's where this story gets fairly interesting. So I started working there and, and the ancillary benefit of that is once you get a full-time job there, you're now university staff and your degree is free or you can study free. Um, so after that, I studied a bunch of unnecessary stuff because I worked at the university for like eight years. Legals one and two, I did uh, sociology, I did philosophy, philosophy, the second year. So it's now a good time to kind of draw parallels <laughs> between you and, and Steve Jobs. Because... Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> in, in fact, I think uh, there's, there's an interesting thing about that, which is I think lots of people draw parallels for themselves to that sort of thing too early. And yeah, I think we miss out. But no, uh, so so no such parallel. Like like at but the you, time, but you went and studied all these different like humanities and stuff out of passion, not because you yeah. had to. So yeah, this is true. So so I took lots of stuff because I thought it was cool, and it's a cool way to do degrees. Like I actually would recommend it if people could find a way to do that stuff. Legals was super interesting. Philosophy was super interesting. Um, so I still wasn't attending many of the classes because it was now a full time job at the university. But that kind of suited me well. So I'd end up just sitting for the exams, this time trying to make a plan for my DP along the way. But it did mean that my first degree wasn't a computer science degree. It was a BCom information systems degree, which is a little bit looked down on by the hardcore computer scientists. Um, so after that, I went and I got a honors degree in computer science from the University of South Africa to kind of earn my chops with the, with the hardcore. And so guys, that's what really struck me about Harun. Like he had a, had a consistent mantra, a consistent theme throughout his life. When he was faced with more than one option, he would always go for the option that, is, that has higher barriers to entry, that was more difficult, that was the, the road less traveled, if you like. So after 10 years at university, that's, that's one decade of studying and being in a learning environment, Harun made a very, very bold move. And that was to let go of his very consistent paycheck, his very comfortable role at the university, and join a startup that had five other partners. And his experience in this startup for the next decade would build the foundations of Thinkst, the company that he currently owns. You could couch all of this with the fact that it seems a lot clearer with hindsight, but I'm sure most of it was just me being young and saying YOLO. Um, but at the time, mainly it was... Uh, the thought that I could do what I wanted uh, and not, not in, in the general sense. I mean, at the time, I really wanted to be breaking into systems, breaking into applications. And here was a company that was, that's why it was going to exist. And so it was a chance, a question of, cool, we can do that here. 
Um, so, so mainly I was at the time looking for the opportunity to do the work that was interesting to me. So um, to get this right, you spent 10 years of your life hacking into companies. Yeah. So, so that's what we did. Um, and we got really lucky uh, really early on. So when you've got a services company that does that sort of thing, part of the way you get new business is you find novel ways to do it. And then you either publish it as research or you give a talk about it at a conference. People then see you talking and think you're smart and either give you more work or give you more research. And so we found that model way early on, like in our first year. So for 10 years, that's what we did. We broke into companies, broke into networks. And as I got older in it, I spent more of my time focusing not on the esoteric so much, but but again, almost always looking for the bit that's harder. So so while we built a company under us with more guys that were doing this sort of stuff routinely, I'd focus more on, well, how would you do this in super tight situations? So increasingly, the work that I did was harder, more niche. It then allowed me to do more research, publish more. It becomes a virtuous cycle of masochism. Um, so you spent 10 years hacking into companies and telling them how, how silly their systems were. Um, were there any examples that stood out during that time? Um, so, so yeah, there's, there's lots of good stories and, and probably the best stories that are bound by NDAs. So, so one of the things is, and just to latch onto something you said, one of the things you learn pretty early on is telling people they're silly doesn't get you very far. So, so even if you are taking their system to shreds, you absolutely have to go in with a look. We understand how this happened and let's figure out a way uh, to go forward. Um, but essentially at the time, yeah, we'd be hired by really good companies. So we did work for Cisco before they launched products. So we did work for just about any of the big name vendors. And this is all in South Africa, right? Yeah. So, so we were based in South Africa, but for early years, 80% of our work was done international because South Africa hadn't yet caught up with uh, computer security as a discipline. And because we spoke at those early conferences, uh, we were speaking to an international crowd. And so companies uh, from internationally would, or international companies would then hire us and we'd either be breaking into their networks uh, or breaking into the applications. Breaking into networks and applications sounds a lot sexier than it is or sounds a lot cooler than it is. At the end of the day, it's a geek sport. So it's not really uh, something that lends itself to viewing. Like, I'm sure it's cool in your circles. Right? <laughs> yeah, like like I remember, uh, so I was uh, married when I started SensePost and for some of the highlights of, of our hacking, like I'd call my wife over and show her, look, like you've now got a shell that's inside this mega corporation X. And of course, all it looks like is Code. a terminal screen uh, on a computer. <laughs> so yeah, it doesn't translate so well, um, but she humors me and she she feigned excitement. Hi guys, just a quick plug for Toledo Society. Toledo Society is aspiring to become a network of high quality podcasts for English speaking Muslims across the globe. If you're interested in getting involved, by all means, jump on ToledoSociety.com and and contact us. We'd love to hear from you. You spent 10 years at university studying and working uh, and setting up their systems and getting their systems working. And playing pool. And playing pool. (laughs) And um, And then you spent another 10 years working on your company, right. hacking into systems, giving presentations and whatnot. Uh, that's 20 years of your life. <laughs> right. And <laughs> I want to understand what it takes to become an authority in a field. 
That's a super good question. Um, so I don't know about other fields, but I can tell you uh, specifically about ours and it's relentlessness. And, and by that, I mean, uh, we interviewed uh, like, like this company ended up doing really well and had a really good name for it. And, and so we'd end up interviewing people, multiple people a week uh, for people who wanted to work with us. And one of the things you find in common is that tons and tons of people would say, this is a field I always wanted to get into but I'm really busy with my day job. And if I could do this full time, I know I'd be awesome at it. But everyone I know who is awesome at it is awesome at it because they gave all of their time to it. So so almost by definition, if that person wasn't doing that thing already, they almost weren't going to do it when they came across and had it as a day job. Because what it requires is uh, insane dedication to the craft. So you'd hire people who think this is what they always wanted to do. But it's not what they want to do 24-7. I think one of the important things is, is to be able to find the job or topic where that won't feel like work to you. Because I think it takes that to make it to the top. And you're not able to give that unless it's something you love doing. Um, so, so the thing that you love doing makes that pain worth it. And that pain is the price you've got to pay to get really good at something. So you strike me as someone who has many interests and can can love more than one thing, yeah. um, especially since early in your career you had a, a multidisciplinary life. You know, you you studied law and you studied some humanities at university because it was free and because you had the time uh, in between your pool. So you were exposed to much more than information security and you enjoyed a lot more than information security. How did you focus for so long? For 20 years of your life, you dedicated yeah. your night and day to information security without being distracted by other disciplines or other yeah. causes or, or categories. It's, it's interesting. And again, I can't take any credit for doing it deliberately. I think I was lucky that the field kept advancing and kept giving uh, almost other hills to conquer. So, so every time I'd reach a certain level, there'd be a, but there's these other guys pushing the field forward here. I know you get tons of books that'll tell you, you don't compete with others, you compete with yourself, blah, blah, blah. But I had a natural, uh, well, hold on. These people know this component. You don't, like you can't really believe you're an authority on this until you understand that also. So Harun actually sold the business because he wanted to move into something that's a lot scalable. So he wanted to get into the product space as opposed to stay in the services industry. And his first product was actually a subscription service and he was charging, get this, $8,000 for. $8,000 for a newsletter. I'm sure it was more than that. But still, that's what happens when you become an authority in the field. You can charge $8,000 for an email. Um, so I was starting to get, uh, to feel like breaking into stuff wasn't that challenging anymore. I wanted to build a product. And so it made sense to uh, look at a company that could build a product uh, instead of just breaking other people's products. Um, so I started Thinkst in 2010, initially just gave some talks on research that I'd been doing for a while. Um, so I got to give a talk to the guys at NATO on cyber war just before 
cyber war went really big. You um, gave a speech to NATO. Yeah. As no, you do. <laughs> <laughs> no, so talk-wise and research-wise, I've been pretty lucky. Like, like we've had the opportunity, like, like I've spoken at Oxford, I've spoken to NATO, um, we've trained uh, countries, militaries. So again, as politically incorrect as it sounds, like I've stayed on the base at Quantico for, for weeks. So the previous job, once we got really good at it, we were pretty authoritative on it and being authoritative on a, in a field that doesn't have many leaders puts you in an interesting space. Initially, we started selling an information product. So, so essentially I'd sell a report that we'd put out four times a year that essentially said, here's what the computer security research landscape currently looks like. And the thinking there was people liked listening to me for what it's worth. And instead of selling my time individually, I could write it in reports and sell it to multiple people multiple times over. And so we'd charge uh, at the time, or I'd charge $8,000 per subscription. And so you'd just get multiple people paying for it, which. And how many customers did you have? So, so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't too many. Like at the time, I think I had 12, but again, they were really nice customers in terms of. So that, that's enough to sustain your, uh, you know, your livelihood and and traveling around the world and. Exactly right. It, it keeps the bill, uh, it pays the bills. It, uh, it allows you to focus on other stuff. It forces you to get out of bed in the morning and actually do some work. Uh, the only time we stopped this subscription service was when it started becoming too onerous. And it's something I want to go back to. It's, it's actually a good product. People like it. We can market it more. So, so no, it's a useful service and people seem to like it. Perhaps a podcast. <laughs> Not smart enough for podcast. Harun, uh, we're going to talk canary now. Do you mind uh, helping those listeners out there who don't fully understand what Canary is? Just get a grasp on what the product is. Sure. So most organizations only find out that they've been compromised up to three months after they've been compromised when they find out. So, so hackers break into their networks and it's three months before most orgs even know that they've been broken into. So what we built is a tiny device that's Again, the concept is relatively simple and relatively old. Um, so there's this concept of a honeypot, which is on your network, you put down something excite enticing. And when attackers break in, they touch this thing that's enticing and you get a notification letting you know that it's happened. So the, the simple way is if you take this home network right now, your laptops on it, your TV is probably on it. You've probably got a few devices connected to this network. So when an attacker breaks into this network, um, one of the first things he has to do is get situational awareness, which is what else is here? What can I take? Do you have a backup server sitting somewhere with lots of files on it? So the Canary devices plug into your network and look like one of your devices. So, so you plug this device in and you say, this Canary is laptop backup too. And on it, you create a share called personal finances. And on it, you create a bunch of fake files. And the logic is that an attacker who breaks on your network doesn't know the layout of your network yet. So he has to look around. And when he looks around, he can't distinguish your real useful stuff from your fake useful stuff. And he has to touch it. But for anyone who's on your network, there's never a reason for any of them to touch that stuff. So your everyday people or your legit users never touch it because there's no good reason for for them to touch it. But a fake or, or an attacker is forced to touch it because he doesn't know the difference yet. And you get a clear notification telling you 
someone's touching stuff on your network that they shouldn't be touching. And um, who are some of your clients now, if you're allowed to say? Yeah, so so Alhamdulillah, we've got really good customers uh, internationally. We can't mention lots of them, um, but some that have given us permission to mention them. So Etsy are customer, Slack are customers. If you use the internet today, it's almost guaranteed you've used people who use Canary. It's going to sound horribly salesy, but on our website, we've got like this canary.tools forward slash love. And, and so what happens is for lots of these really uh, big companies internationally, they can't tell people you use them until they clear it with legal. But a whole bunch of them have already tweeted uh, love for the product. And, and it's cool for us because it's relatively rare to see a security product that people actually talk about. So, so yeah, we've got good customers. We've got uh, these internet companies right down to like two-man law firms or an aquarium in the... Well, internet companies, like I can comfortably say the likes of Twitter. Uh, yeah, so so it's the... If I'm allowed to say. <laughs> so so the big social media guys, almost all of them uh, use us. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool, alhamdulillah. And Did you design the product yourself? Uh, yeah, so, so we designed, uh, so I designed it myself, but, but by this point, like once Canary took off, like currently the team behind it is about 11 people all based in South Africa at this point. So so we've built it. We've now branched out. So it's not just the physical devices. We've got uh, canaries that live in Amazon Web Services and canaries that live in VMware. And we've even got these almost a smaller version of it. So back to your fake Excel document or fake Word document. It's, it's actually branched out into a whole bunch of the same concept, which is lightweight things that are easy to deploy but that let you know when bad guys are on your network. So you set up um, things in 2010. It's now 2018. Critical mass came at around 2014-15. Yeah. So so we only released Canary in 2015. For me, it's a huge deal to have a product within a few years uh, be used by all the tech giants or most of the tech giants across the globe. Right. And we're talking three or four years here. Right. Talk me through that journey. Like, right. was it that easy? <laughs> so I think everything seems easy in retrospect. I'm not going to say it's ridiculously hard because there's an interesting thing I always think about, which is a quote from Ev Williams, the guy who started Blogger and Twitter. And he was talking about how much we fetishize the idea of the starving artist or founder who's sleeping under the desk, working behind his product. And he talks about how they built some products that didn't take off. And then they built Twitter and you immediately knew it was going to be a hit. And when he built Twitter, he said, you go, oh, that's what success feels like. Like way before it, it made squillions, just seeing people take it up organically, you get this feeling that goes, oh, that's what it feels like. And in truth, after fish, uh, after signal noise, where we had to beg newsrooms to use it, and Fish 5, where we had some good customers, like guys like Evernote and SoundCloud, um, good customers using it. But when we built Canary, you actually saw what success feels like in terms of successful product pickup. Like suddenly people were coming to you saying, hey, we heard about this product or we saw this product. We'd really like it. And was Canary five years in the making? Or no. was it just an idea that you, you had and, and you did? Yeah, so so from the time we, we first had the idea to the time we put a product out was about a year. And it's because the first version of Canary was dead simple. So so the first version of it, so, so the way that worked is we had this idea. Um, the first 
hardware versions that we built were super rudimentary. Literally, we built uh, 12 Canary devices, which were in cases that I 3D printed uh, here in Doha. So so we 3D printed the cases, we hand soldered uh, the stuff in it, and we shipped it out to 12 people who we knew in the industry who I thought would be good customers for it. And essentially, we were saying, hey, here's this thing that we're going to build. If we built it, would you buy it? And and it was useful feedback to get because like the director of security at Etsy, when he looked at it, before he plugged it in, his comment to me was, look, we've got our own internal honeypots. Why would we need Canary? Sure. And and I said, well, look, I'm sending it to you. Um, Give it a try. Let me know. They tried it. And his feedback was, cool, we'll take. And I think their first amount uh, that they took was 10. And and they're a good example of a crowd that like took 10, took 20, took 40, uh, took more. But once it was built and people tried them, um, we had enough feedback. So so I think from the 12 we sent out, 10 people said, yes, we'd buy it. And, and as generic advice for anyone who's building a product or building this type of business, one of the most useful pieces of advice you can get from someone is or feedback you can get from someone is commitment to buy and and i know that sounds uh super obvious in retrospect but like it's super easy to fool yourself right when when you invest time in something you really want people to like it and because people are generally not asses they don't tell you that your baby is ugly so so you build something and you ask your friends what it's like and they'll tell you it's nice you you can even ask potential customers like what do you think of this and most people will tell you, hey, that's super cool. I like that thing. Generally, people are not bad people, but it's different when you say, would you pay for this? And and so we had 10 out of 12 people committing to buy it. Incredible. I mean, you're in a very, very highly specialized field, and I'm assuming the products that you're des- describing that things produced aren't produced overnight. You know, you can pr- you need several months, if not years, of prototyping. Did you still have the kind of perspective of a typical startup of fail hard, fail fast? Yeah. Uh, even in in the space that you're in. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The, the the fail fast stuff gets trumpeted a lot, and it's surprisingly hard because when you've got a reasonable name for yourself. If if you're sending something to Etsy, you don't have too many bites at the cherry. Like you send them junk once, maybe twice. The third time you send them junk, they're going to stop trying your junk. So so there's still a minimum bar of fail that you're allowed to pull off that'll allow you a second bite at the cherry to iterate at. But yeah, sure. Our first versions were relatively rudimentary, went out, we iterated on it, and we kept iterating to the point where it became more polished for a more general purpose audience. But again, for almost generic uh, startup advice, something that worked really well for us was the first version of Canary that we released would not have been good enough to be consumed by the two-man law firm that I was talking about. They would have looked at it and said, this thing's still too rough. But the first bunch of customers that we went to were guys who were skilled enough in the field, saw that it still saved them enough effort, knew that it had some rough edges, but it still had enough value for them. And so they'd take it at that point. And them taking it allowed us the confidence to invest more in it, more money, more time, more people. Uh, you spoke a lot about South Africa and wanting to go back um, when you were in Doha. Why are you guys set up in South Africa? Now that you're a mature business with clients right across the globe, uh, instead of, say, Silicon Valley, where I'm assuming a lot of your clients are based. Yeah, so we've got a disproportionate number of customers in Silicon Valley and Australia, surprisingly enough. But yeah, so the main reason we're still in South Africa is because I like it. 
I've always called South Africa home. When we were at the height of Sense Post for us, we had lots of opportunities to move. And if you remember my initial comments about being fortunate to be in the Rainbow Nation, like I'm one of those people who, for the most part, believe. And uh, like we've now got a company of relatively smart people learning how to build stuff and sell stuff. So it's a more more of a principled decision as opposed to or a mission-driven decision yeah. as opposed to a business decision. Yeah, I'd, I'd not want to take away people who can make stuff from South Africa. So we there, it doesn't negatively affect our business too much. In fact, there's some benefits for staying out of Silicon Valley. Like Silicon Valley is a bit of an echo chamber. I, I don't totally buy the traditional VC method of building companies. Like I think it's a, it's a little bit insane. And of course, at this point, I will be right until I'm wrong. So we'll either win decisively or be the cautionary tale for other people on why they should move their businesses to Silicon Valley. So I've, I've known you for a couple of years now, and I know that you have a fairly good work-life balance. <laughs> um, and you're trying to kind of have that penetrate into the organization that you currently own and lead. I hear that you have an awesome HR policy of unlimited leave days uh, for your staff. Can you talk me through kind of type of corporate culture that you're trying to build at, at Canary and Thinkst? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm, I'm not sure where you got the work-life balance from. I suspect you'd hear different things uh, also at different stages of my life. Yeah, so, so we're trying to build a good corporate culture that's research-friendly and that's sustainable. So so in my previous life with SensePost, I was pretty anal about pushing super hard for insane high quality and insane amounts of research. Um, and my thinking there was, look, if you want to be presenting at a black hat, if you want to be on the cutting edge of the stuff, this is what it takes. And I've been pretty fond of quoting, uh, there's a paper which most of your listeners should read called You and Your Research by Richard Hamming. Um, and he talks about in that paper, he writes about what it takes to do world-class research. And he's talking about Nobel quality research. Um, and I was a really big proponent of this for a really long time. I still am. With things and Canary specifically, one of the things you figure out is that uh, you can have parts of your company that are focused on doing international talks, but you still need people who are cashing the checks or doing the books. And those people don't need to be sacrificing all of their time. They make different trade-offs. So with Thinkst, we try to make sure that we a nice place to work in addition to being a learning organization. The, the leave question is an interesting one. So we do, we have an open leave policy. So you take a minimum number of days, which you must take now. And beyond that, anything more that you want, as long as your work's being done on time. We also give everyone a corporate credit card. And there's like a one line uh, document on a server that says, use the card to do whatever is good for us. And the interesting thing is, when you give benefits like that, the org, hopefully, like we've seen it now, but but what you'll notice is the org almost becomes self-protecting. Because if you have an open leave policy and an open credit card policy... People don't want to lose that. Exactly. And you also, if you get someone in there who's now spending the money on buying... 
I don't know, buying movies for himself every month, you've clearly hired the wrong person. And so the org almost self-protects because if you get in someone who you wouldn't want to give those benefits to, you risk losing those benefits. So so you end it's up... It's almost with... your internal honeypot, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, but for the most part with things, uh, we're fortunate. Like you end up working with the sort of people you want to work with, doing something that you want to do. So now was probably around the time that I, I felt the need to ask him about his religiosity because uh, Harun was alluding to his religious identity as a Muslim and he threw in a couple of inshallahs and mashallahs and alhamdulillahs in, in the interview. And so I wanted to ask him how he was able to maintain his values as a Muslim and his identity as as a South African Muslim out there in, in the world when he's kind of selling to, to big tech giants and, and uh, consulting universities. Like, I suspect one of the problems for me for a question like this is my religion and my spirituality is mostly really personal. Yeah, it's it's been super important to me. It's, it's a voice in the back of your head constantly, even when it comes to visible achievements. It's going to sound completely ridiculous, but I grew my beard after I started doing black hat talks. And uh, it, it was coincidental timing, but, but part of the logic at that point was, and hey, you just on to this... Just be clear, this is like a, this is a religious <laughs> this beard is... as opposed to like the cool... Uh, yeah, yeah. You know... No, and it looked even less cool when I started uh, growing it. <laughs> then I just looked, uh, yeah. Uh, but, but literally my thinking at the time was, hey, you on a good stage now and you've got all these people uh, in the computer security community looking at you. It's it's a good point to point out that actually you're very clearly Muslim, which is almost the opposite of... And why is that important to you? Uh, so I think we need more Muslim role models. I think both for us as Muslims, we need more role models. But I even think it's important for the rest of the world to see uh, Muslims achieving in spaces... A question for our audiences. What are two things that we must do and two things that we should avoid? Two do's and two don'ts. At the risk of sounding horribly prescriptive. Um, so I think on my list of do's, it's just hard work. Like it's uh, almost all of these are going to sound cliche, but I think there's no substitute for for hard work. If if you want to end up doing talks at a conference like uh, Black Hat, uh, there are a fair number of people who've done single talks over the year and, and it allows for a burst. But I think if you consistently want to put out uh, Black Hat quality work, it just means that you dedicate a large part of your life to it. Um, the good news for that is it's pretty well accepted that hard work like that has cumulative benefits. Again, in the paper that I referenced, which really, if, if people take just one thing away from this podcast, it's that they should go read uh, this paper called You and Your Research. And, and in the paper, Hamming talks about someone he worked with who was so much smarter than him, even though he was younger than him. And in the end, after analysis, he says, uh, someone who works just 10% harder than you consistently ends up getting such disproportional benefits as time goes on. So so yeah, for, for a do, I think people shouldn't underestimate or I think people should realize that hard work just pays off disproportionately. The second do is make sure that your choice of partner is someone who supports you for, for this type of effort. Again, it takes effort. It means that you're working hard and you are dedicating portions of your spare time um, to this type of work. And when you married, 
your spare time is actually shared time. So you're dedicating a shared time to an interest that's largely yours. I've seen really good practitioners be made or broken by a partner who supports them or doesn't. So it's, uh, if, if this is something that's genuinely interesting to you, then you need to choose a partner who will support you pulling the late nights and, and early mornings. In terms of don'ts, again, I, I mentioned a few times during the rest of the interview, but I think we shouldn't be celebrating too early. I think it's going to sound a little Puritan, certainly very stoic, but I think that many times we celebrate our wins too early and it stops us uh, from working harder because we, we get our dopamine hit really early along the way. And then we kind of put our hands up as if we've uh, succeeded. Um, especially right now, they're really good uh, role models for success out in the world. And uh, it's one of those times when I think we should be looking at the guys who are achieving more and trying to figure out why why we're not able to make that depth of impact. And, and we need to ask those questions honestly. And the last two, I think, is just not to chase money. I've always felt that if you work hard and if you uh, add value, the money comes. And and uh, like, I want to be clear that that's not being said because I've got it easy and we've now got money in the bank. It's kind of always been my philosophy um, that says if you, if you make enough to cover your bases, to, to make sure that you're relatively comfortable and then choose the harder of the alternatives, uh, rather than the one that makes you more money and generally, uh, down the line that ends up working well. Okay. Harun, we're going to ask you a set of questions. You're going to have 10 seconds to answer each one, uh, at which point there'll be a canary sound joking. So we're going to kick off. You're praying in the front row in Masjid al-Haram in Mecca and the Imam falls sick. And they ask you to lead instead, and you have a chance to make one dua. What is that dua? That's to make all of us more useful, to make us useful as Muslims, uh, useful to the religion, useful to the world. Second question, if you didn't have to work, what would you be doing? What I'm doing right oh, now. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> it, it pretty much is. Okay. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Uh, right here, where I am. <laughs> Oh, look at you, mate. A place you'd like to go on holidays to? Alaska. Why? Um, I've never been. Looks beautiful. And a book that you would gift and you would swear by? Um, so I, there's two of them, The Innovator's Dilemma and Only the Paranoid Survive. Uh, the best $100 you've spent on a product? Audible subscription. And an app that you would swear by? Instapaper. Seriously? <laughs> I use it a lot. Okay. All right. <laughs> I was going to tell my uh, South Africa water joke, but it's not funny anymore, man. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for listening. We really appreciate your support. If you have any ideas for Transit Lounge or Toledo Society as a network of podcasts, we'd love to hear from you. Please reach out to us via info at toledosociety.com. 